This morning, I invite you to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Malachi. And what I would like to do over probably about the next seven or eight weeks or so is to walk through this uh, short book of Malachi. Sometimes these last 12 books of the Old Testament are called the minor prophets. But when you study them, you realize there's really nothing minor about them. They're shorter than the bigger prophets, and that's probably why they're called the minor prophets, but their messages are powerful. And they may not say a lot, as much as Isaiah or Jeremiah, but what they say is incredibly important, and it is the Word of God. And sometimes these small books are not treated very much, they're not studied very much, but I think we're missing a lot when we don't take time to think about what these books are telling us. And so I want to walk together with you through the book of Malachi over the next several weeks. And uh, this morning, I just want to introduce the book, kind of give us a little bit of a historical uh, and cultural background to what Malachi is dealing with, with the people of Israel at this time. And then my goal and hope is to walk through the first message of Malachi, which is verses two through five. Malachi lived, as far as we can tell, anywhere from, say, 515 B.C. through like the mid 400s, late 400s B.C. And the reason we don't have a definite date is because the book of Malachi doesn't give us a definite date. With some of the other later prophets like Haggai, and Zechariah, they tell us exactly when they ministered. They give us precise years and times when they receive messages from the Lord. We don't get that with Malachi. But we can tell from the message of Malachi, we can tell from, from its themes, from what it discusses, that it is during the post-exilic time of Israel And probably because Malachi is not mentioned by the other prophets and not mentioned in some of the other Old Testament books, he's probably the latest of the Old Testament prophets. And so we put him at some point after the temple was completed. And so think about the larger history of Israel just for a moment. We have, after the time of Solomon, a kingdom of Israel that was divided in two. The northern kingdom followed Jeroboam, who is not of the proper line of David and the the right dynasty. And so the ten northern tribes split off and followed Jeroboam and formed the kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim in the scriptures. The two other tribes or remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed faithful to the dynasty of David. And so they followed Rehoboam, Solomon's son, And they became known as the kingdom of Judah. And so you had Israel and Judah, now two separate nations. Sometimes they lived in harmony with one another and helped one another. Sometimes they were in opposition to one another and did battle with one another. But two separate kingdoms under two separate monarchies. And the northern kingdom, we know from the books of Kings and Chronicles that they were every single king in the line of, of the northern kingdom was corrupt. Not once do you find a king of the northern kingdom who did what was right. They were all idolatrous, pagans, evil, wicked, 
And, and so their history is a bit shorter than the history of Judah because God allowed the Assyrians to overthrow the northern kingdom and take them into captivity in about 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, it's a bit more mixed. You have a lot of wicked kings, but you have a few righteous kings sprinkled in there who wanted to do what was right and who sought to live after the pattern of David. And so their history lasted a little bit longer, lasted until about 586 B.C., but then they fell to the Babylonians. The Babylonians deported many of the Israelite people from Judah and took them to Babylon. That was their policy. The policy of the Babylonians was to really try to reorient, reculturalize, if I can put it that way, the peoples and to try to bring everyone into a central, centralized place, mostly focused in the larger cities of Babylon. And so a lot of the people of Judah, people like Daniel, were taken into captivity and were brought to Babylon. The people of Judah spent approximately 70 years in Babylon, learning the language, learning the culture, learning the ways of Babylon. But then after 70 years, Cyrus, the Persian, conquered Babylon. In fact, the way that Cyrus, the Persian, describes it is the Babylonians welcomed Cyrus as their new rightful king of Babylon. And Cyrus came in, took over the property, the area, the territory of Babylon, and brought it under the Persian rule. And so the Medes and the Persians then became the new dominant power in the world. And in about 539 BC, Cyrus reversed the policy of the Babylonians. The Babylonians had said, everyone needs to come here, be centralized in Babylon. And so we're going to deport you and bring you here to Babylon. Cyrus's view of things was the opposite. And he thought that it would be better for the kingdom to let the peoples go back to their native homelands. And so there's different reasons why people think that Cyrus did that. Some think that it was just better politically, more expedient for him to do that, to maintain unity and cohesiveness in the empire. Some think that he was able actually to to raise more taxes by doing that, by letting people go back home and farm their own lands, and, and he could glean more tax revenue that way. But whatever the reason, the purpose of it was ultimately of God. And that was to allow the people of God to go back home. And so many of the peoples of that time who had been brought to Babylon were allowed to go home, and among them were the people of Judah. And so the Jewish people came back home to Jerusalem. They came back home to a broken down, deserted, destroyed city. But over time, it was rebuilt. They faced many challenges along the way. They faced a lot of opposition, from, especially from the Samaritans in the land of Samaria. A lot of opposition, but over time and through God's help and God even working through the political powers of the day, the Israelites of Judah were successful in rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and in and re, resetting society back in Jerusalem and Judah and starting over again. Malachi, his message appears to be sometime after that. Sometime after the temple has been completed, after the worship and sacrifices of the temple have been reinstituted, and allowing enough time to pass 
where the Israelites could fall into a sense of complacency, into a sense of disillusionment, of discouragement, uh, where the, the triumphs of the finishing of the temple, the finishing of the walls, where those triumphs are a little bit more in the distant background. And, and now they've gone for a little period of time and, and some decay, spiritual decay, has started to creep in uh, among the people. And what you find in the book of Malachi is really a series of disputations. That is kind of like dialogues or arguments back and forth between God and the people. And in each of those disputations, in each of those arguments, God, through his prophet Malachi, is addressing some of the core thoughts and attitudes of the Israelite people. And those thoughts and attitudes of the Israelite people were corrupt and cynical, skeptical, confused, discouraged. And, and God, through Malachi, is challenging those thoughts and those attitudes. And the first one that we see in verses 2 through 5 is the Israelites had come to believe that, that God did not love them. The Israelites over time had come to believe that God had somehow forsaken them or that God had somehow let them down. And perhaps it's because the, all, the grand future that many of the prophets foretold, in fact, we read an example of that earlier in the service from Jeremiah 31. This, this grand glorious vision of a future Israel that is regathered reunified not only the southern tribes of Judah, but also Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And this, this great reunification happens, a great regathering of God's people under a Davidic king, and in which the Gentile nations become subservient to the people of God in Jerusalem. And maybe the people of Malachi's day are looking at their world around them, and they don't see that quite fully unfolding yet. And so they're wondering, has God forgotten us? Has God forsaken us? Is God still coming? Is he still going to act? Is he still going to fulfill his promises? And while our situation is much different from Malachi's, I think we can identify with that, that thought, with that attitude. Because we live in a time where it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to heaven. And the last promise that Jesus left with his disciples is, I'm going away to the Father, but I'm coming back again. The angels, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the angels appeared to the apostles and said, just as you've seen him go in the clouds, in like manner you will see him return in the clouds. Throughout the New Testament, we have promises of the second coming of the Lord when he will return. And there may be times in our lives as Christians when we might become disillusioned, discouraged, and we might start to wonder, is God ever going to fulfill his promises? And the message of Malachi in verses 2 through 5 is, God has not forsaken you. God has loved you, still loves you, and will love you. That's the message of God to the people of Israel. God has loved you, he still loves you, and he will love you. 
He has not forsaken you and he will not forsake you. That's a message that, that very powerfully spoke to the people of Malachi's day. That message very powerfully speaks to us today as well. Because we're Christ's people. Christ has loved us. He still loves us. And he will always love us. He will not forsake us. And so the, the book of Malachi starts out in verse number one, a prophecy. Another way of translating that would be an oracle or some the older translations have the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Some have wondered, is Malachi a, a real name or a, a personal name? And one of the reasons why people wonder that is because Malachi literally means my messenger. And so some have thought that Malachi isn't really his proper or personal name, but it's just like a title or a designation, my messenger. In fact, one of the very old Jewish targums, Aramaic targums of Malachi, includes a a little note that says that my messenger, Malachi, is actually Ezra. And so there there is within ancient Judaism a thought that Malachi was actually Ezra, and Ezra was his name, and Malachi, my messenger, is his title. That's one thought that has that some have have given. But I'm not convinced of that. I think that on balance, it's better to take Malachi as his personal name. And really, it's not unlike many of the other personal names in the Old Testament where the name means something in relationship to God. So, for example, Daniel means God is my judge. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And so many of the personal names of the prophets, of the names of the Old Testament, have a meaning that is associated with God and perhaps even associated with their role or their function in what they will accomplish. And so I take Malachi to be his actual name. He is a separate person, distinct from Ezra. And this is a Malachi who is a prophet called of God to deliver the Lord's word to his people. What's fascinating about verse number one is the way that the people of God are described as Israel. Because in a technical sense, the people that Malachi is ministering to are the people of Judah. The people of Judah, the ones who have returned from Babylon, the ones who have come to Jerusalem, who have re-inhabited Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls, those are the people of Judah. And so in the other post-exilic prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, they are referred to as the people of Judah, the ones who came back from Babylon. It's interesting here that he calls them Israel. And I think because it's two possible reasons why he does this. One is possibly future-looking of the future hope and outlook of these prophets that God is going to reunite his people as one Israel, as northern kingdom and southern kingdom, as Ephraim and Judah. He's going to reunite them again, and they will be known as Israel. That's one possible way of understanding it. Probably a better way of understanding it is that Micah is looking, or Malachi is looking backward. He's looking backward because of what he's about to talk about. He's looking backward to the the ancient ancestral heritage of the people of God as one people coming out of Abraham, being chosen by God as his people, the people of Israel, the people of Jacob. 
And that's how he refers to them. He refers to them by their more ancient name, their ancient heritage as Israel, the people of Jacob. And so the very first thing that we see in this passage in verse number two is God says that he loves Israel. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. In verse two, we see the love of the Lord declared. The love of the Lord declared. Very succinctly, very briefly, The Lord says to the people of Israel, I have loved you. I have loved you. This is an authoritative declaration of God through his called prophet. And Malachi says to them from the Lord, God loves you. And he has loved you. And that's one of the reasons why I chose Jeremiah 31 as a parallel passage to read this morning, because in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah makes the statement from the Lord, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And here in verse two, when the Lord says, I have loved you, it it brings to mind the message of Deuteronomy 7, where in Deuteronomy 7, Moses makes the case, it's not because of how great you are, Israel. It's not because of how large you are, not how numerous you are, not because you are the greatest nation in all the land. No, God loves you simply because he loves you. In other words, God's love was unmerited. God's love was unearned. It, it did not come because of how great Israel was or how great Israel would become. God loved Israel because he chose to love Israel. And here that love is declared. Why does it need to be declared? Because the people are doubting it. And so in the second part of verse 2, we see the love of the Lord doubted. The love of the Lord doubted. The people ask, how have you loved us? This is Malachi speaking for the people. And he is, in essence, putting into words their, their thoughts, their attitudes, their disillusionment, their questions, their doubts. And Malachi is saying of the people, the people are wondering, God, you say you've loved us, but how have you loved us? In what ways? What, what's the proof? Show us how you've loved us. And so it speaks to a a kind of a doubt, a skepticism that has started to creep into the hearts of the Israelite people. In spite of what God had done for them, just look at their more recent past and how God delivered them from the hand of the Babylonians through the decree of Cyrus and allowed them to come back home. How God overcame 
all of the opposition of the Samaritans and all of their enemies around them. And God triumphed and allowed the Israelite people to rebuild the temple and to restore civilization in Jerusalem. In spite of even those recent victories of God on behalf of his people, the people are starting to wonder where God's love is. And that can happen to us too, can't it? We can look back. We can look all the way back to the cross, can't we? And we can see the love of God on display. We can look back to other times in our lives when God has blessed us. When, it, when his hand of blessing is very, very evident and unmistakable. We can look back to those times. But there are times when we forget. And there are times when the difficulties of the moment, setbacks, trials, enemies, frustrations, lack of God's promises being realized, at least in the way that we think they should be realized, and we start to wonder, we start to doubt. God, do you still love me? Where I need to see it. Where, where is it? Show me how you have loved us. And so the love of the Lord was doubted by his people. But then Malachi responds. And here is his answer to the people's doubts. The Lord's love for his people was determined. The Lord's love for his people was determined. What does Malachi do to remind the people of God's love? First of all, he takes them into the distant past. And he reminds them that God's love for them was determined by the sovereign Lord. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This takes us back to Genesis, doesn't it? takes us back to Genesis and the patriarchs. And we see Isaac and Rebekah. And Rebekah is pregnant with twins. And the Lord comes to her and reveals to Rebekah through prophecy. The Lord says to her, there are, there are twins, two boys, two sons in your womb. But the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. And so we see in that, even before they are born, God's choice of who will carry on the, the promised seed of Abraham. Who will carry on the Abrahamic covenant? From Abraham, through Isaac, not Ishmael, and now through Jacob, not Esau. So God chooses Jacob. What does this speak to? This speaks to God's elective choice, doesn't it? This is God's elective choice. God, out of his own will, out of his own wisdom, out of his own desire to show grace, God chose Jacob over Esau. And we could ask, is it because Jacob was better? Just read their stories. And you'll see that Jacob was not better. They were both scoundrels in their own ways. Jacob was known as a, as a supplanter, a trickster, a deceiver. Jacob conned Esau out of his blessing by deceiving Isaac. He manipulated him out of his birthright when he was coming in out of the fields. Jacob certainly wasn't a model character in which God would say, he's the righteous one, so I'm going to choose him. It's not because of what they did. 
In fact, Paul goes back to this very passage, Malachi 1 and verse number 3, and he quotes from it in Romans chapter 9 to explain and to describe God's elective purposes. He uses this as an illustration to describe how God's elective grace works. And what he reveals in in Romans chapter 9 is that God's elective grace does not operate according to merit. Because he says, before the twins were born, or had done good or evil, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of the one who calls, it is said, the older will serve the younger. So Paul says that this choice of Jacob over Esau, and then by extension, moving into Romans, applying it to other uh, people and God's application of salvation to them, Paul is saying that God's elective choice, his work of grace, is not on the basis of what we do. Not on the basis of what we have done, not on the basis of what we're doing now, not even on the basis of what we will do in the future. God's elective choice is based simply on grace, simply on his own will. There is no other human factor involved. In fact, the way that God's elective grace works is generally contrary to our expectations. God often works contrary to the way that we would normally think he should work. In the case of Esau and Jacob, it should have been the older over the younger. God worked opposite. Just to show, just to make the point, this is how God's grace works. It doesn't work according to merit. And so God is reminding the people of Israel now of Malachi's day. Remember this moment. Remember this moment in your ancient history when God set his love on Jacob and says, the older will serve the younger. Jacob will be the leader over Esau. Remember that choice. And Malachi is saying to the people of his day, yes, you might be discouraged, you might be disillusioned, you might be doubting God's love, but let me remind you of something. God's elective determination to love you, which never fails. Because God's decisions, God's purposes are unchanging and unfailing. So Malachi is grounding the proof of God's love for them in God's own sovereign, elective, eternal choice. Sometimes we have a problem with the language here. Jacob I love, Esau I I have hated. And some people understand it in the sense of God's not really hating Esau. He's just loving him less. And I understand that that desire to kind of temper the language here. Fundamentally, the language is communicating elective choice. That's fundamentally what the language is about. That, that in God is loving in the sense of choosing, and God is hating in the sense of not choosing, passing over. That's really at the core of the essence of what is going on here. This is about God's elective choice. But even beyond that, I think we have to wrestle a little bit with the word hate in the context because the whole rest of the context is about God's wrath and judgment on Edom. 
And so there's a sense in which we can't just gloss over the word hate and say that just means he loves them less. When you look at this passage in verses 3, 4, and 5, and the rest of it goes on to communicate, God is punishing Edom for their wickedness. His wrath is against them. Even when they try to recover and rebuild, God says, no, you won't. I'm going to destroy you and make your land a wasteland. So we have to wrestle here with the judging side of God's elective choice. So there's a saving side of God's elective choice, but there's also a judging and condemnation side of God's elective choice. And here Esau is on, and by extension his descendants, Edom, are on the condemnation side of God's elective choice. And so God loves Jacob, and God is reminding the people of Malachi's day, remember this, God loves you. He's determined in the past to love you, and he will not forsake his determination to love you. Fourthly, the Lord's love for his people is demonstrated. So first it's declared, then the people doubt it, then the Lord says, your love has been determined by my choice. Now the Lord, through Malachi, reveals that his love for his people is demonstrated. How is it demonstrated? It is demonstrated in the way that God takes care of Israel's enemies. And in this particular instance, the enemy, the troublesome aspect in Jacob's life was the Edomites around them. The Israelites and the Edomites had a troubled history. So the troubled history of those brothers, Jacob and Esau, extended outward throughout their histories, and Israel and Edom had a troubled history. And most recently in their history, Edom is viewed in the book of Obadiah as helping the Babylonians and cheering on the Babylonians when Jerusalem fell. And in Obadiah, God has a message of judgment for them because of that orientation toward God's people. And perhaps whatever remnants were left of the Edomites, they still had that orientation towards God's people. And they were opposed to them. They were against them. And maybe the people of God were questioning God's love because of this opposition from the Edomites that was continuing. And God now says here, I'm going to demonstrate my love. I'm not only going to remind you of it from what I determined in the past, I'm going to demonstrate it now to you in the way that I handle Edom. And I'm going to bring judgment on them. Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. God's wrath, his judging hand, has been visited upon Edom. Even to the point where Edom may say, we, yes, we've been crushed, but we're going to rebuild. And perhaps that is also in a similar historical context of returning to the land of Edom after the decree of Cyrus that the native peoples could return home. And so the Edomites are saying, hey, we're going to rebuild. Maybe just like the Israelites rebuilt Jerusalem and their temple, the Edomites are saying, we're going to rebuild. But God says, no, you're not. This is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. That's the way God's salvation often works. Is it is a two-sided coin. It is salvation for the people of God, but it is judgment for the enemies of God. 
And here it is salvation, it is deliverance, it is comfort for the people of Judah, it is wrath and condemnation for the people of Edom because of their wickedness and their hatred toward God's people. So how is God going to demonstrate his love? He's going to demonstrate it in the way that he rescues Israel from its enemies. And finally, in verse 5, the Lord's love for his people is displayed. You say, what's different from demonstrated to displayed? Well, the language of verse 5 is this. You will see it with your own eyes. And you will say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, God's love for his people is not only going to be demonstrated in a, in a sort of proof of God's love for them, but God's love for his people is going to be put so much on display that they can't help but see it. It's going to be evident before their eyes that God loves them. So much so that their only reaction can be the Lord Yahweh, our God, is great. He is great. And isn't that why the Lord does all that he does? He does it all to bring honor and glory to his name. He does it all to honor himself, to glorify his name. In the salvation of his people, he does it to glorify his name. Ephesians 1, praise be to the grace of God. God's grace is to be praised. God gives grace and redemption to undeserving people, and the result of that is that God is praised and glorified. You will see it with your own eyes, and you will say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, God's not just a local God. He's not just a Babylonian God or a Persian God. God is the God of all the earth. And God has a plan. He has purposes that extend well beyond Israel. And I think in this very last phrase of verse number five, Malachi might be addressing some of their disillusionment. Their disillusionment of where are all these blessings that the prophets were talking about? Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, They were looking forward to a day of great reunification, of great regathering, of God bringing the nations to Zion, the city of Jerusalem, as its center and its hub. And maybe Malachi is speaking to that here in this last phrase when he says, God is the great Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. He's going to make this happen. It may not be yet, it may not be in your time, but he's reminding them of the promises of God. That God is the God beyond the borders of Israel. He will gather his people. He will bring the Gentiles in. There will be a reunification under a Davidic king and Lord, the Messiah. The Lord's love for his people will be displayed. And there will be coming a time when it will be displayed for all time. His love for his people. The same hope that the Israelites of Malachi's day had to look forward to we have that same hope. We have the same assurances. What is the evidence that God loves you? God has chosen you. God has called you to himself. God has redeemed you by the blood of Jesus Christ. God has regenerated your heart and awakened faith and repentance within you. 
God has given you the indwelling spirit. He's baptized you into the church of the living God. He has adopted you into his family. He has given you an inheritance with the saints that can never fade away. He has given you an eternal home in heaven where he is preparing and one day he will come back from and return and call us to be with himself. He is coming to bring his kingdom, a new Jerusalem to this world. He is coming to make a new heavens and a new earth. Let us never doubt that God loves us. God's love for us is not only declared, but it has been determined, it has been demonstrated, and it has been on display and will be on display for us as God's people. The Lord has loved us, he does love us, and he will always love us. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the great love that you have shown to us that we do not deserve. You have been merciful to us beyond measure. Father, we recognize, we admit, Father, that there are times in our hearts when we doubt. There are times in our hearts when we wonder when your promises will be realized. We wonder sometimes when will your son, the Lord Jesus, return? When will our future day of salvation come? Lord, remind us from your word today that your love for us is unfailing, that it is anchored in your sovereign, gracious purposes, that it has been demonstrated for us through the redeeming work of Christ, and that it is even now in this moment on display before us, we can see your grace at work, active in our own hearts and lives. God, remind us, reassure us of your love. May we never forget that your love is eternal and unbreakable. Bless us as your people, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.